Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. It's Andrew Gordy from News Hub. Uh, fantastic, fantastic show last night, Gords. Uh, congratulations and welcome in. Thanks, mate. Yeah, thanks for thanks for listen, uh, listen, uh, listening, watching. Um, yeah, glad that you guys enjoyed it. It was um, it was a big piece of work to to put together. Um, but yeah, I think it's a fundamentally, uh, like you mentioned, it's it's a question that I I just find people asking more and more. You know, are are we falling out of love with rugby as a nation? And I think it was really uh, an interesting experience to speak to a lot of people across different levels of the game to find out you know, what, what some of those issues are. And, you know, the reality is, Staff, that rugby, and, and actually not just rugby, lots of sports are facing different challenges uh, in 2023 than they were, say, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Rugby is certainly one that is facing some, I think, rather unique and complex issues here in New Zealand. Um, you can't cover them all uh, in a one-hour show. Um, but, yeah, we certainly tried to have a crack at, uh, you know, a few of the areas that we thought were really standing out head and shoulders above the rest. Personally, 10 years ago, I loved rugby. Today, I like rugby. And I think it's important people are falling out of love with rugby. doesn't mean they have fallen completely out of love. They, they want it back. Um, what, what were some of the key resonating things that were common in the different sectors of, of stakeholders, rugby fans? What, was there a common thread through all of them? Mate, I actually think that one of the biggest issues that is out there at the moment is that rugby has really lost the narrative. But that doesn't mean that they've necessarily lost the fan altogether. Mm. Like a lot of there, are, there is a lot of kind of false narrative out there. I think about that people aren't watching, people aren't going to games. That's actually not true. It's fundamentally not true, mate. And we tried to put some of that across last night. And look, I, I know that. Um, we, we can't cover off every franchise and things like that. But, look, there has clearly been a lot of narrative, especially on social media. You will have seen it. We've all seen it. Like, there is a huge rise in chat support and everything around the Warriors and, and wider, I suppose, talk about the NRL as a product. Now, I don't mind saying to you, mate, like, I'm, a, I'm an NRL fan. I consume a lot of NRL products. Mm. Um, I think their product is outstanding. It's world-leading, um, and that goes right from what's happening on the field to the off-field product, I consume all of the, the programs and everything that goes around it, like NRL 360, like great show, watch it yeah. all the time. It's, it's great, like theatre um, for, for, your, for your average fan. I think there's work to be done in that space for, for rugby because that's a key part, like having constantly something to talk about. You know, with Super Rugby, and I know that this is something that the, the Super Rugby Commission intends to touch on, but we need more talking points you know, you look at the biggest talking point in Super Rugby in recent memory was Bowden Barrett moving from the Hurricanes to the Blues. And, like, remember the storyline about that. Remember the niggle. Remember when, you know, he got beaten on the outside at Eden Park and Colsey got around him. And that, those are the sorts of images that create water cooler talk. There is not enough of that stuff in Super Rugby. We don't have enough player movement. Um, we don't have enough controversies or... or um, 
yeah, just interesting things for fans to engage in. Like when a Super Rugby squad is announced, we know who's going to be in it. Um, when when, when the, it comes to this stage of the season, we knew. We could have told everyone at the start of the season which teams were going to feature in the latter stages of the competition. And that's where it needs to change up. It needs to pull some levers, dip into some mechanisms that are going to make this a fundamentally more interesting product because the people are there. They want to engage with rugby, but I think that this competition, and that's a joint responsibility for both New Zealand and Australia, they need to make this a competition and, and a sport that's easier to love. Yeah, I, I, I took what Mark Robinson, I, I, I'm always a bit disappointed because Mark Robinson always says, like, we're not in trouble, our engagement's good, our digital stuff's up and, and viewing figures are good. Um, but I think that's... All of which is true, mate. Yeah, that's yeah. all true. But it, that doesn't mean there's not a problem. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for putting that into a sentence I was struggling to say. And it's like, and, and it always seems to fall into, and we have it with our talkback and our listeners, it always becomes, becomes a rugby versus league thing. Now, I love both. I love the Warriors. I support the Hurricanes. I love Manawatu more than anything. Can't wait for the NPC. But the gap is closing. Um, I've always thought rugby league is a better TV game and rugby is a better in-person game. But I'm not going to rugby games in person. I am going to the Warriors in person, and it and, and it's changed. And I, th- I think they should be closer aligned. Let's do double headers. Let's, let's yep. appeal to people like me. And if the Warriors were playing anyone um, before or after the Blues Hurricanes, line me up. Line me up. 100%, mate. 100%. And look, the... I actually think that if you were to speak to Andrew Hoare and Cameron George about that, I think they would love that idea. I'd be, I'd be stunned if they didn't think that was a great idea. The issue you're going to have there is clearly around scheduling. But there might be instances throughout the season where that might be achievable. You know, is it, is it really beyond the realms of response, uh, you know, sorry, uh, possibility that you, know, you could have either a, well, it would probably need to be a Saturday evening kind of prospect I suppose and it's probably the Warriors first you know there is a time slot there that they can play on a on a Saturday evening before you know the Blues and whoever else might kick off um, you know and the, the later kickoff time for you know for Sky audiences but it's hard to align those two things I like personally I would love to see an Eden Park doubleheader um, the Warriors and the Blues both playing um, on, on a Sunday afternoon at Eden Park. It would be outstanding. And who, tell me, Steph, who wouldn't pay mm. a little bit extra as well to fill out? They, they would fill that stadium, I've got no doubt. The issue you've got, though, is, and that's something I definitely want to touch on, is Eden Park is a huge problem for the Blues because they, they have, you know, the, the facts tell you that between those two clubs, the Warriors and the Blues, the Blues have actually managed to attract the biggest crowd this season between the two, the two clubs, I suppose. Um, but when you see 23-odd thousand at Eden Park, people are making, they're shaping their perception of fan experience from the, from the comfort of their own home. They're looking at that and going, the stands look empty. Uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't look like a full stadium. I can see lots of empty seats, which they're then leading themselves to believe it's a crap fan experience. They're obviously not having a good time. It's not a good time going to the Blues. That's not correct. Like, I know from myself, like, obviously, we went along to the Blues Hurricanes game for our investigation. And look, I'm, I'm happy to admit that I'm not someone who goes to lots of Super Rugby games. Mm. But I was genuinely surprised. Like, it was a much better atmosphere than watching it on television would, have, would lead me to believe. Mm. And I think it's almost like a bit of a case of, like, don't knock it till you try it. Because I think there's people who watch it on TV 
and just jump to the conclusion I'm not prepared to try it because it doesn't look good. Now, I'd ask you, Steph, if the Warriors were playing at Eden Park every week and the Blues were playing in a, I won't say Mount Smart Stadium necessarily, but let's say they were playing in a 23 to 25,000 seat stadium, I think our perceptions of fan experience of Warriors versus Blues would be very, very different. Bang on, bang on. Because I think I think the Warriors have had three sellouts. They probably could have sold another five. They might have got to 30. But you you don't take them to Eden Park and, and then cross your fingers. You be, Like when people say Warriors have sellouts, the Blues don't. Well, the Blues need to sell twice as many tickets and that's not going to happen. You put up the averages and the Warriors have higher averages, but in... Uh, in an individual game, the Blues have had a bigger fan base and all of that. And here I go, going rugby versus league again. But there's, there's so many, I've always thought too, like the scary thing for me, Gords, is 10 years' time with all these juniors dropping away, uh, participation numbers, um, kids, parents don't want them to get hurt. There's so much more around concussion. Um, it's a much higher intensity game now with long-term injuries, etc., etc., etc. So there's a multifaceted threat here. Fan engagement, um, rules, uh, the weakness of Australia. I was talking to Ian Foster uh, two or three weeks ago and he said the big problem here is with, with the South Africans gone, we're just playing each other all the time now. That's all we're doing. It's New Zealanders playing New Zealanders in meaningful games. And I think that's why we were exposed against Ireland last year and Argentina last year because we didn't have experience of changing things up. So many different pieces in this pie yeah you're absolutely right mate and it's again i just come back to the point like rugby at at every level of the game is facing increasingly more complex challenges and and you're absolutely right in terms of the the departure of the south african teams from the super rugby competition has has probably meant something uh, a big change i think for our players and what they're whether that's preparing them um adequately to test rugby and, and things like that um I don't think personally that that's the most important thing. Like, the All Blacks in this country is still a strong product, okay? Like, they, the, the people still buy tickets to the game. They're a premium product. It's still a very strong brand. And I know there's been a lot of talk, you know, especially around in the wake of the Silver Lake deal around the All Blacks brand. Personally, I don't think that's where the, the issue exists. Super Rugby is where the issue exists because that's the week-in, week-out competition that really does, I think, personally shape national sentiment around how we feel about rugby mm. separate rugby from the all blacks for a minute because they are two like sort of fundamentally different things you know the all blacks are the brand and yes they represent our national identity but in terms of actually playing the game of rugby and that comes back to like do i want to consume the product week in week out do i want to watch games do i want my son or daughter to play the game you know are they are, are people still registering to play this game and turn up on saturday mornings and and that sort of thing and yep you're right we pointed out um, and our numbers last night, obviously, that were provided by New Zealand Rugby, there has been a drop-off. And I'm sure, you know, without question, some of that has been affected by COVID. And I think the, the numbers that um, are, are eventually made available for this year's registrations will be equally interesting, I, I think. But there's something else that we didn't get, a, get time to touch on last night. Now, this is purely anecdotal, but I know we highlighted the example of Ponsonby Rugby Club, for example, and their mm. numbers are down. What I'm hearing anecdotally is that numbers in the heartland regions are up. And that's where perhaps there's a more, another complexity. Like, you know, you, you think about metropolitan areas. It's like a school. It's like, a, think of it like a secondary school. If you go to a small secondary school, the number of choices that are available to you, the number of subjects that are available are, are smaller, right? Because you simply don't have enough teachers and things like that. 
But if you go to a big high school, there's lots of subjects available. It's like that with, with sporting or, or I suppose pastime um, options that are available to you in a big city as opposed to a small, small city uh, or a small town, you know, that sort of thing. Like, I'm sure there's lots of small towns in this, in this country that probably don't think there's any problem with rugby because all the kids play, mm. you know, whereas in, in, in the metropolitan areas, like especially like central Auckland, there are so many other options and there are so many other challenges facing parents um, in terms of whether they can get their children to training or, you know, a, a myriad sort of things stacked. So, again, it, it just comes back to more complex issues, I think, around around attraction to the game, registration to their junior level. Um, but, look, do I think that we're going to see a knock-on effect in 10, 20 years' time, uh, you know, sort of the, the All Blacks falling away because there aren't enough kids playing the game? I still personally think that there's a pretty reasonable number there. You know, 74,000 kids are playing rugby in this country, and... And I still think that there's, um, you know, that the kids that are still feel really passionate about this game and the, and the kids who, who want to play uh, are still playing, right? And it's not those ones that are, they're losing, I don't think. Um, so I don't, I don't necessarily jump to the conclusion that we're going to see a weakening necessarily of the All Blacks. I think it will be to do with other factors, like what you pointed out before in terms of, uh, you know, not playing South African teams week in, week out, that sort of thing. And... and being able to cope with the physicality um, of Test rugby. Last thing, and, and it was my big takeout of last night, and it was with a smile on my face when the talk of New Zealanders playing for Australian franchises still being eligible for the All Blacks and Mark Robinson welcoming that question. Doesn't look like Aussie want to go down from five teams to three because the, the, the rooster that Hamish McLennan is, is he's like, that'd be a win for New Zealand, so we're not going to let them have that win. But it would up the it would up the skill level of the Australian teams. It would make it much more interesting, I think, for all rugby fans. Um, you, you suggested, I think, Artie, you know, he could go and play for the Brumbies, but the Hurricanes <laughs> wouldn't be happy about it. But New Zealanders <laughs> would have to embrace, look, we're going to lose Stephen Perifeta. We're going to lose Sima Penifina or someone, someone like that to, to make the whole comp better. Sounds like Mark Robinson's open to it. Do you think it can happen, and how soon? Oh, I think it absolutely has to happen, Steph. And I know that there's been a lot of different options talked about, about, about you know, how do we make this competition more even. I know that the idea of a draft system is very attractive, especially to people who are fans of American sport. I think there's some challenges in executing a draft plan, especially, you know, sort of younger players, like rookie players coming through. I think there's, there's just... Um, a couple of factors, like the logical point to have a draft system would probably be for kids who are, who are coming out of high school, and I just think that's a bit too young mm. um, to be then inserting them into, into a super rugby situation. The logical point for a draft system would probably be when kids are about 20 years old. And the issue I think that you're going to have there is they come out of high school, then they enter their super rugby franchise's sort of development system, and then basically you're saying to those franchises, like, you're probably going to lose your, your player in the draft now. And the issue with that is that discourages super rugby franchises from investing in their development system. So I think there's an issue there that, that is, and that's not really what you want, is it? I think for fundamentally, and that should be for, for teams on both sides of the Tasman, I think you should be invested in, in developing your own players and have the opportunity to see that player come through and, and have a successful career with your franchise. I think where, it's, where the change has to happen is the idea of a salary cap system um, and, and the ability to transfer like the big names and the big talent 
between franchises because I think there's a couple of knock-on effects here. It creates great net, um, narrative, obviously, for the fan, that idea. And I know I picked Artie last night, but you could pick any player going to going to another franchise overseas, whether it's Damian McKenzie going to the Rebels or whatever, that will inevitably help spread the talent, right? And a salary cap system would definitely help that. Um, and I think that the, the example that I always have top of mind, mate, is, is Richie Moanga, actually, because... Oh, we lost them. ...to, you know, set up their family. Um, oh, sorry. No, got uh, you back. Got, got you back. Start again at right, Richie Moanga. Sorry, yeah, the, the, the example that I keep thinking of is Richie Moanga because he's a guy who really, he's, he's in the prime of his career and we're losing him to Japan. And I don't begrudge him that decision at all because, you know, if you've got a chance to set up your family and it sounds like he's going to be earning a lot of money, um, fair play to him, no, no doubt about that whatsoever. But I just wonder, Staff, if there was a situation where you could say to Richie Moanga, do you know what? you've got an opportunity to go and play for, let's say it's the Waratahs or the Reds or the Brumbies or the Rebels, and they're going to offer you twice as much money as you're earning at the Crusaders. Now, it's not maybe the three times as much that you're going to be earning over in Japan, but the difference for him is then like, right, do I want to accept a little less money and still be able to play for the All Blacks and achieve what I want to do with the All Blacks while staying sort of in this part of the, of the world? I think that would be a really interesting sort of extra thing for players to think about. And I think anything that they can do to help keep those marquee players within the competition is, is a massive win. And again, it's sort of, that would bring us closer to what we've got with the NRL. You know, leading players, bouncing around different clubs, the, the constant conjecture or, or speculation about is this player going to move to that club and things like that this competition desperately needs something like that. So I think it's, yeah, it's imperative for Mark Robinson, Hamish McLean and the powers that be uh, to come up with a system very, very quickly uh, that moves us more in line with what professional sport around the world is. Mm. Brilliant, Gords. I've taken up way more time than I might have indicated. I would really appreciate it and a fantastic show last night. Uh, Congrats. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. Here is Andrew Gordy from um, News Hub Sport. I'm sure that's on the TV3 now. You can replay and, and watch it on demand. Give us a call on your thoughts. 0800 150 811. We'll take your calls after this.